passing by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. I'll try not to have a coughing fit in the middle of this. Uh, say a little prayer for me. Maybe some steam would help. Do you think if we had those fog machines, it would be helpful? Well, I've started the last couple of sermons, the past two weeks, by asking questions like, how can you be saved, or how do you get to heaven, how do you enter the kingdom, how can you be justified before God? Those are important questions. The Gospel of Luke has been inviting us to ask ourselves those very questions, but in a sense, we now see Luke answering those questions in another way. Uh, he's answering the question with a question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Well, in his own day, people saw him as maybe a good moral teacher or a miracle-working faith healer, an eccentric religious leader, a revolutionary, even a crazed insurrectionist he was suspected of, or some combination of those things, and you maybe see the same views of Jesus around today. But who is Jesus, really? The answer to all those questions that I've asked over the past couple of weeks really hangs on the answer to this question. To put that another way, the nature of the kingdom of God is not defined by us, but by the king. It's not that certain kinds of people with certain attitudes are kingdom material. The kingdom is for anyone and everyone who enters by way of the king. So we have, again, in the past couple of weeks, looked at several people who enter or fail to enter the kingdom. We've looked at the nature of their faith. What were they trusting in? Were they trusting in riches or self-righteousness? Or were they trusting in the mercy of God? We have looked a little bit at the fruit of their faith. Did it bear fruit in comparison or, or boasting or humility? repentance, dependence on God. Well, today we meet a man who is blind, who according to Jesus is saved by faith. Verse 40, is it 43 or 42? The last verse, Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. Made you well could also be translated as your faith has saved you. So what do we see in the nature of this man's faith? We see a little bit of the fruit that his faith bears, but more importantly, we see his faith's object. We see his answer to that question, who do you say Jesus is? In whom does his faith rest? Jesus Christ. We see his answer again to that question, who is Jesus? So I want to start by looking at something of this man's faith, uh, the fruit of his faith. And that is perseverance. We see that his faith bears fruit of perseverance or persistence. Now, this isn't necessarily the main point of the text, but it is an important point in the text. And it's a thread that started all the way back in the opening verses of this chapter. 
Uh, chapter 18, uh, Jesus there, he taught a parable of the persistent widow to teach the disciples to always pray and not lose heart. And in the parable, there was a widow who uh, kept bringing her plea to an unjust judge. She was persistent. The idea was to be persistent. The blind man here in Jericho is a real-life example of this. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing the crowd going by. He inquired what this meant. They told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So he learns that Jesus is going by on the road, and he calls to him for mercy, for help in the midst of his need, his plight. And the crowd tells him to shut up, which is real nice, right? They had at least two reasons to tell him to shut up. One we'll get to later, but one has to do with the beggar's view of Jesus. Yeah, which has to do with the beggar's view of Jesus. We'll get to that one later. The other has to do with the people's view of the beggar, which we'll get to right now. I said last week that the rich ruler, who we met last week, would have been seen as deserving of his riches. His riches were a sign of a well-lived life, God's blessing on, uh, he must be doing something right. By contrast, here's a beggar. They see him as both deserving of his blindness and his poverty. He must have committed some secret and probably scandalous sin to bring this on himself. He deserves to be there on the side of the road. He's not worthy of Jesus' time. So whereas today uh, we would hope and, and seek that a, a person who's blind can have a, a fruitful and, and productive life, but the only option this man had in the first century was to sit by the road and beg, and people would have assumed that's where he ought to be. That's the right place for him. You may have noticed, uh, thinking back over the past few weeks in Luke, there's something of a pattern. Because earlier in Luke 18, uh, through a parable, we met a Pharisee, a person who, again, back then, would have been seen as righteous, righteous in the world's eyes. They looked up to the Pharisees. But in the parable, he's unrighteous in Christ's eyes. He's not justified. That was followed by an incident with parents bringing infants to Jesus. They were rebuked by the disciples those infants, again, unworthy in the world's eyes, at least of Jesus' time, but worthy of the kingdom in Christ's eyes. The pattern then repeats, right? Because last week we saw a rich ruler, righteous in the world's eyes, but unrighteous in Christ's eyes. And today, a blind beggar, again, with the crowd's rebuke, unrighteous to the world, but to Jesus, saved by faith. So Jesus doesn't judge by the world's standards. He doesn't consult popular opinion. Anyway, we see that the blind man's faith, getting back to the point here, it bears the fruit of perseverance when the crowd tells him to shut up. He just cries out all the more. The more they tell him to be quiet, the louder he shouts. It's kind of like having kids. I'm joking a little bit. I do want to clarify, though, um, make this joke for a reason. You know, sometimes when people raise their voice at you, you are going to instinctively want to raise your voice in return for your reply, right? We've all had those, shall we say, disagreements 
where we just keep escalating the level of uh, whatever you want to call it, anger, let's call it that, until we're in a full-fledged shouting match, right? Uh, sociologists have a word for this. It's called Facebook. <laughs> but the blind beggar, he's not just escalating here. He's not retaliating. It's not that he's matching the crowd's level of obnoxiousness. Uh, if we look at verse 39 here, look at it again here and, and see what he says. You know, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, no, you shut up. Now, that's not, that's not what it says, is it? As far as we know, he doesn't even respond to the crowd. He just continues to cry out to Jesus in really the same words, Son of David, have mercy on me. He continues to recognize his need for mercy, his need for Jesus. So the resistance that the crowd brings, it doesn't distract him from that earnest plea. It only spurs him on. Hymn writer Henry Francis Light wrote, Man may trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Suffering produces endurance, said Paul in Romans 5. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness, we read in James 1. So when faith meets adversity by the Spirit's power, that faith bears the fruit of perseverance. And that perseverance is not a drive to stick it to your enemies. It's not a self-righteous sense of my own superiority over these people. It's not a fight response powered by adrenaline. It's a faith response powered by the Holy Spirit. It is perseverance in faith, laser-focused on the person of Jesus, desperately aware of your need for him. Why did the blind beggar, why did he continue to cry out all the more to the son of David for mercy? Because when the crowd added hostility to the adversity he already faced, they only gave him all the more reason to cry out for the mercy that only the son of David could give. So he kept his eye on Christ. Now, there are times to, to speak to those who hate us, time to defend your beliefs with Maybe rational arguments, times even to defend religious liberty, even by filing lawsuits at times. I'm not against those things. But regardless of the outcome of those things, our faith remains fixed on Christ. That means that as we engage the world, however we are called to do so, and as we face op opposition, what escalates in intensity is our prayer. We don't repay evil with evil or mocking with mocking or slander with slander. The old song says, you can talk about me all that you please. I'll talk about you when I'm on my knees. We can say that without any hint of holier-than-thou malice. If our faith is not resting on our own conduct or the response of those we're talking to, but on who Jesus is fully aware that we need him as much as the world needs him. That brings us back to the question, who is Jesus? Who is he that his identity gives such boldness to a blind beggar? Oddly enough, I think the best way to see that is to look at a couple unique things about this blind beggar's identity. For one thing, this is the only blind man 
that we meet in the book of Luke. That doesn't mean that Luke thinks that this is the only blind man that Jesus ever healed, but Luke, in deciding what to put in his account and what to leave out, decided only to cover this man, and only here in Jericho. By the way, I should back up and tell you that Jericho is significant because this is the last stop on the way to Jerusalem. Since chapter 9, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. We're in this whole section called Journey to the Jerusalem, uh, Journey to Jerusalem section. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, ministering on the way, going to die on a Roman cross. And Jericho is the last town he enters before Jerusalem, and it's only a day's walk away. So it's the last stop of Jesus' itinerant ministry before we meet a blind man. And that should surprise us because Jesus has been making a big deal about healing the blind, at least on a couple occasions. In Luke 4, when Jesus kicked off his earthly ministry, he went to the synagogue in his, own t- his hometown and, and read from uh, the book of Isaiah. He said in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim to the captives, liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He brings this idea up again in Luke chapter 7. This is where John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus, asking if he's the one. Apparently, John the Baptist's faith is faltering in some way. Jesus sends this reply, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. He lists other things, but the blind receive their sight. That's the first on his list. And by the way, the word there uh, that's translated receive sight or recovering of sight, it's, it's the same in both Luke 4 and Luke 7 and here in Luke 18 when the blind man uses it to ask, recover, I want to recover my sight. So what? Well, Luke is underlining this event. This isn't just any healing. This is a demonstration that Jesus has come to fulfill the word of God to the prophet Isaiah, just as he said. A little bit more about Isaiah's prophecy here. It, it's What Jesus read was a combination of Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 42. The part about recovery of sight to the blind comes from Isaiah 42. Uh, let me give you more of the context there, just to give you an idea of, of what they were expecting and what Jesus is saying that he's come to do. Isaiah 42. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring, I tell you of them. Such a a rich passage. There's so much we could go into there. We see God's glory. We see God's covenant. New work of God, which ultimately will amount to a new creation. As Jesus replied to John the Baptist, the recovery of sight to the blind is a sign that these greater glories are present. Greater promises are being fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. Recovery of sight to the blind, by the way, is something that only God could do. Going all the way back to the book of Exodus when God calls Moses and Moses is worried that uh, people aren't going to believe him. God says, who made man's mouth? 
who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So in light of all of that, a blind beggar on the side of the road near Jericho believed that Jesus was the one who could give him his sight. Now again, don't know how much he fully understands here. I don't know if at this point we could read him the Nicene Creed that we had just recited and he'd say, that's it, very God of very God, one substance with the Father, that's what I'm saying here. But he does recognize that in the ministry of Jesus, God is at work. In the person and work of Christ, God is there fulfilling his glorious promises. So it is to Christ that he turns to receive what only God can give. Recovery of sight to the blind, and along with that, he receives everything else that work signifies. Your faith has saved you, as Jesus says to him. One other thing is unique about the blind beggar in the book of Luke. He is the only person in all of Luke who refers to Jesus by this title, Son of David. That's once again surprising because going back to the beginning of Luke, Luke has made a big deal about Jesus being a son of David, descended from the Old Testament King David. David's name pops up seven times in chapters 1 through 3, as Luke tells us of the birth of Jesus, as an example, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that the Lord will give her baby the throne of his father, David. Luke, as the narrator, points out Jesus' descent from uh, David and the genealogy of Jesus. Zechariah, filled with the Spirit, prophesies about the horn of salvation that God had, has raised up in the house of his servant, David. But again, it's not until we get to Jericho the last stop before the final destination that we meet anyone who openly hails the adult Jesus during his ministry as the son of David, which is a way of saying that Jesus is the true heir of King David. Now this is, gets to the other reason that the crowd may have wanted to shut him up. Son of David is spicy language for political reasons. If you remember, the Jews at this point are under Roman rule, and they generally don't like it. Some of them are benefiting from it. But they haven't had a Davidic king since the Babylonian exile uh, 600 years earlier. And the days of King David were the glory days of, of the nation. Uh, the nation wasn't unified under one king for much longer after David's rule. And God had promised that a descendant of David would sit on the throne forever, but they've been dominated by foreign regimes, occasionally winning some independence, but never with a, a son of David to rule them. They're currently ruled by Tiberius Caesar through his puppet King Herod. Herod was raised Jewish, but a mix of Jewish and Edomite kings by, by lineage, uh, Jewish and Edomite lineage, rather, and had nothing to do with David. So Judea, in this situation, it's a powder keg. You, you have the, the Sadducees getting rich, colluding with Rome. There are people called Essenes building kind of their own hippie communes out in the desert. Uh, zealots trying to gain support for overthrowing Rome. Uh, you've got the Pharisees sort of appealing to popular resentment toward Rome, but as I understand it, not really doing much about Roman uh, oppression other than some nationalistic virtue signaling by way of intensified law keeping. But it won't be long before they do, as a people, try to up, uh, rise up against Romans, and it doesn't go well for them. It leads to the destruction of the temple. But just to give you an idea, this is the political climate. 
And here's this blind beggar crying out that Jesus is David's heir. Jesus is the, the king who has returned. He may as well be shouting, all hail King Jesus. It's not just some kind of metaphorical king of the heart, they would have understood, but literal king of his people. And that's a dangerous message in that context. But the thing is, he's right. Jesus is the son of David, according to the flesh, Paul said in Romans 1. And Jesus is actually king. All authority in heaven and on earth does belong to him, Matthew 28. He has the right to rule not only over Judea, but all kingdoms of the earth belong to him. We recited earlier in the Nicene Creed that his kingdom will know no end. He will come back in power to reign. He may not exercise that right on earth politically now, but he will. When he said, my kingdom is not of this world, he did not mean his kingdom is only in your heart. He meant his kingdom is not part of the current fallen temporary order. His kingdom belongs to the age to come. Which, by the way, means as we enter his kingdom, we belong to the age to come as well. When he returns, kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Meanwhile, it's not our mission to overthrow those kingdoms, because we understand that doesn't happen until he returns. But to the extent that kingdoms of this earth demand our ultimate allegiance, the authority of Christ is a threat to that agenda. So what did the blind beggar see in Jesus? Getting back to that question, in Jesus, he saw the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He saw that God had come to his people to begin a new work. He saw that the king had finally come. But we're in Jericho, a day's walk from Jerusalem. We know that's where Jesus is going. We know just a few verses prior to this section, Jesus told his disciples what he's going to do there, to die and rise again. We know this wondrous and strange way that God brings about his new creation, the costly way that Christ will inaugurate his not-of-this-world kingdom by his own blood, you see a hint of that in the blind beggar's words, Son of David, have mercy on me. We are all of us in need of mercy. As I've been saying, the kingdom is not for the deserving. It's not a reward for those who earn it. It is mercy for those who need it. And it comes through the sacrifice of an innocent Savior. Colossians 1 says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are by nature under the power, dominion of darkness, and in need of deliverance from that. If Jesus had come simply conquering, he'd have to wipe out everyone, but he came to die to redeem a people for himself. To enter the kingdom, we need redemption through forgiveness of sins. As they cry out in Revelation 5 to Christ, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. That means to fulfill God's plan for creation. Worthy are you to open the scroll, to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. 
So how do you get in on that kingdom that Christ has come to build? Well, who is Jesus? Who is this man? How did he open the scroll and build this kingdom? If Jesus did it by being a good moral teacher, then you get into the kingdom by good moral living. Good luck with that. Let me know how it goes. If Jesus is a faith healer and miracle worker, you experience the kingdom by trying to muster up enough faith so that you can receive your miracle. If Jesus is a religious leader, you enter by being religious, acts of religious observance and devotion. If Jesus is a revolutionary, you enter the kingdom by joining the revolution, overthrowing the systems of earthly power. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, come to be slain and by his blood ransom a people from every tribe and language and nation, then he has already supplied the work that is needed to enter into his kingdom. And the way to enter the kingdom is not about what you must do, but about what he has already done for you. The way to the kingdom is to stop trying to earn your way into the kingdom and come to Christ to rest in what he has already done to receive, receive your sight. Let's pray. Lord God, in these words uh, that we've read from the book of Luke, we have seen a blind man receive his sight. And we pause and wonder that after the passage right before where the disciples were unable to see, unable to understand the saying of Jesus was hidden from him, that he must die and rise. We see a blind man receive sight, who is able to see, even in his blindness, something of who Christ is and what he came to do. In this, we acknowledge that even our ability to see who Christ is is a gift from you that you give to us. Lord, we are all of us in various ways this morning wrestling with unbelief. There may be some here who are completely unbelieving, who do not believe Jesus is who he says he is. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ, the glory of God, and the person of Christ Jesus. For the rest of us, uh, those who do believe, we still struggle with unbelief. We still depend on you. Would you help us to see more and more, give us a clearer and clearer picture of who Jesus is and may our faith correspond to that vision. May, may our faith bear the fruit that comes with being laser-focused on Christ, knowing who he is, seeing him for who he is, knowing that only you could give us that sight. May it give us humility. We don't boast. We know that there's nothing we have that we didn't receive. May it give us a heart for the lost, to pray for them, to both live out and speak the message of Christ to them. 
to desire for their eyes to be opened. Lord, give us a clearer vision of who Christ is so that we might, like the blind beggar, be focused on Christ, live a life that is focused on Christ. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.